The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Okay, I'm always... Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. It's been a little bit. Um, I was out of town. I was in Detroit for a full week from the relocated Browns-Bills game to the scheduled Thanksgiving Bills-Lions game and uh, didn't bring my equipment with me, number one. Number two, I had piss-poor Wi-Fi in this hotel I was in in Detroit. And uh, number three, I came down with food poisoning on my uh, last night uh, prior to uh, the Thanksgiving Day game. So uh, it's been a raggedy week or so for me, and uh, I haven't uh, podcasted. But here we are together again, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times, and Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic, and this is... Week 13 of the NFL season, this game that the Bills are going to play is December 1st, so it's also December football, so this is getting late in the ball game here. And uh, we have the nexus of Matthew Fairburn's three beats, the Bills, the Patriots, and the Sabres. We're going to talk about them all, and uh, I'm glad that Matthew's able to join us. Where do you want to start, Matthew, since you're the uh, guest in the uh, center of this confluence? What, what, what stands out to you? What's most interesting to you here on November 29th, two days before the Bills visit the Patriots in Foxborough? And also on the same night, the Sabres are in Detroit. You got more Buffalo Detroit action. No, the Sabres are hosting the Avalanche. They played Detroit oh, on sorry. Wednesday night and they okay. host the Avalanche, which is probably the sorry. It's not ideal for the Sabres in their gate that they're gonna haul on Thursday night that the main event in town. You don't think the Avalanche fans are gonna travel for that one? Well, yeah, you've you have that factor, right? You have that you're not even gonna get a little bit of a boost from, you know, a a Canadian team or the Bruins or someone close by. But otherwise, this would have been a game that maybe some people would have circled. Defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. And instead, it's running up against the Bills Patriots, which if it were a home game for the Bills, they probably wouldn't have done this type of a conflict to have two going at once. But because it's a road game for the Bills, I don't think it was much of a factor. And... It's just, it could have been any team, but it happened to be a team that otherwise might draw a little bit for the Sabres. So, all right. So, unfortunate scheduling, the, the unfortunate like. scheduling can't be the most important part of this nexus of your beats. Probably not. But it's what uh, is the first thing that came to mind? I, I think it is. I think Fairbairn. It probably is. is. It's the only place they happy. all collide. 
I think he's more than happy to be at the hockey arena on Thursday night and not having to pay any attention to this football game. Jonah, Jonah knows me well. <laughs> Jonah's been, uh, Jonah's been my neighbor in the press box. Uh, I'm quite enjoying myself on the hockey beat. Uh, I, I'm really uh, liking being at the rink and, I was saying to some people in the media room today, you know, cause that we were all talking about, man, nobody's going to be at this game on Thursday. And I was like, you know what? That makes us all the more important. Everybody's going to watch the bills and they're going to come and find out what happened in the hockey game. So yeah, we got to be glued to it. I actually had kind of forgotten that, you know, when you asked me to come on today, that all three of my beats are kind of colliding here that, uh, that they're playing the Patriots. I keep forgetting that that's this week and that they're Thursday night. And it is a, a pretty substantial game in the division. And it's weird that they play this late, that we haven't seen these two teams match up yet because we are learning a lot about the Patriots, I feel like, as the season goes on. And had the Bills caught them early, I think it wouldn't even have been close but the Patriots have started to put a few things together. The Bills are stumbling a little bit. Still think the Bills are, are the better team by a, a decent margin, but uh, it, the gap isn't as big as it was early in the season. What's your read on the Patriots, where they are now? And I know that you're focusing your attention on the Buffalo Sabres on a day-to-day basis, but you were around that facility for a long time and you followed the Bills for a long time. Um Again, this is the second year in a row we're talking about the easiest bet on the board in Las Vegas heading into a season was the Bills to win the AFC East and questioning that uh, heading into uh, the last season or excuse me, the last month of the season, the last month and a half, because there's actually a, a, a two games in January uh, because of the 17th game. Um where, where are your thoughts here on this being way more competitive than we thought? Jonah, you don't have to chat with us. Uh, you're a member of this podcast. Well, I don't, you don't have to. Rough. You don't have to send us a chat message. Well, maybe I don't want everybody else to know what I just said. Oh, OK. I see. He's Which not he usually the want case his... when I chat. I don't know <laughs> if that is uh, this time, but oftentimes that's why I chat. I can understand if there was maybe a guest who had a, you know, something to sell and you wanted to, you know, shoot me a note. uh, But when you're just sending it to Matthew and I, I mean, it's just. Usually it's a double entendre that you made unintentionally. And maybe I don't want to jump in, but I do want to, you know, Mark. Heaven forbid this, this podcast be entertaining. Uh, Anything that you find witty or interesting, by all means, we should keep it amongst ourselves uh, and not share it as part of the podcast. All right. Well. Okay, so betting on futures in the preseason about NFL teams are sucker bets, whether they're easy or long shots. Right. I don't, and well, I wouldn't even say that they're, yeah, they are sucker bets, but they're also dumb bets because you lose your money and you don't get anything back. I mean, the, the sports book loves these futures because they get to stick it in an account and let it gain interest or, or you know, they can do things with it. Um, Obviously, it needs to be accounted for when the bet cashes out, but that money is out of your pocket for months at a time while you're hoping uh, that you get some of it back. Uh, Especially betting on a heavy favorite, you know, you're putting up more money than you're, you're risking more than you're going to get back, which I guess if yeah. you're really certain, but now with the Bills possibly not winning the division, you probably feel pretty stupid if you took that easy bet uh, in August. The smarter thing to do, I don't know how often those are up to the odds change. So you wait until 
something happens that drops their odds because they're never going to be better odds than they are. You, you want confidence. You want public pre-season. confidence to waver. Exactly. Which will inevitably happen at any point in a season. I think that's, you know, an important point about these bills as we were, we've discussed a few times since I've been on the show. And when I was on with Joe a bit early in the season, I would, you know, mention that it's a new phenomenon to be rooting for a Super Bowl favorite, but it, it is a, it's a marathon, right? You know, if you get so caught up in the, the roller coaster of it all, it's going to be exhausting. You're going to be worn out by the time the playoffs come around. These lulls and these uh, mid-season hiccups happen to almost every team. And you almost rather them happen in November than, uh, you know, if they start to linger into December and January, that's when you, you sound the alarm bells. But they are still eight and three. They're still, if I were putting money, I would say they're going to win the division. But it is, you know, if you're a, a, a betting man, this would be a great time to bet the bills because right now people are thinking everything's up for grabs. People thought the same thing around this time last year. They haven't even played the Patriots yet. They haven't played any of these division teams at home. So in a theory, it is up for grabs, but you know, how much has changed about the bills from the start of the season, other than the injury situation, which is significant with Von Miller and a few other players, maybe whatever's going on with Josh Allen's elbow, but lose this game and the alarm bells really start to go off because not that I don't think the Patriots are good. I marvel at their ability to remain competitive and, you know, it's been such an interesting season for them. They had Bailey Zappi in at quarterback at one point, the sky was falling on Mac Jones in new England and elsewhere for a significant amount of time. The, the, the fact that he was able to go back in kind of improve on where he was before he got hurt. And this team is still right there sitting in, uh, you know, close to contention despite a, a handful of, you know, not great games and a few pretty bad losses. They're still a tough out, but I'm really fascinated by their defense above all else, because there's been last year, they were the number one defense up until right about now. And then the Bills made them look like a like UB's defense. You know, they they looked like completely lost against Josh Allen for two games. Right now, again, they're riding this great defensive run, you know, one of the best defenses in football and all these various categories. But none of that strikes me as particularly important unless they show that they can match up against the Bills on defense. Because if they're going to be a thorn in the Bills side in the division, whether it's this year, next year you know, years to come, that's how they're going to do it until Mac Jones figures it out or they find another quarterback. And if they can't match up, it doesn't matter how many times they intercept Zach Wilson or how badly, you know, they slow down the Browns running game or whatever else, because this is the team to beat. And the last two showings were abysmal for New England. There's something big that's missing from the Bills team this year compared to last year. And you can throw out that first game in which they played. Uh, the wins were so bad. That was the game where uh, the Patriots didn't throw the ball at all. Uh, and uh, I know I've made this joke before, but uh, it was almost as if Bill Belichick was just yelling across the field, hey, Sean, I'm going to run it. And you would think that Sean would be like, Haha, thanks for telling me. But Belichick would say, Sean, I'm going to run it again. And, and McDermott had to be thinking to himself, shit, uh, because there was, was nothing they like, could do about it. 
it was kind of um, like he had him in a in a headlock and was like <laughs> punching him with his own hand and he's like stop hitting yourself right. stop hitting yourself over but, and over uh, was... but something that's missing from those other two games in which the bills didn't punt uh the the rematch and then in, uh, in the playoffs Josh Allen at that time had this almost extra sensory ability to complete and make any target uh, work, uh, whether it, you, you could take Stefan Diggs out of the game, but Gabriel Davis was going to do something. Dawson Knox was going to do something. Maybe even Cole Beasley was going to do something. Isaiah McKenzie seemed to be as effective last year as he's been this year in an increased role. And that's not a good thing. Uh, because these guys were supposed to step up and replace uh, the no longer here Cole Beasley and the no longer here Emmanuel Sanders. And Dawson Knox was supposed to, if not take a next step, because he had such a breakout season last year, maintain. And he's done it with his receptions and his uh, yards, although the yards are down, the yards per catch are down. But if you were to give them a pace, they're roughly the same, but the touchdowns are way down. Uh, and it's just not uh, the offense just doesn't have that feel of, OK, you can go ahead and take away one of our weapons, but we have so many others. Now, there's this feeling that uh, you go into any game as a Bills fan. And if you're a Bills fan, you hope the players don't feel this way. But me watching it, I think as a neutral observer, I, I don't feel that that um, that assurity. Uh, that I did when I was talking about this team being the best in the NFL. And I think that they were for the first two months of the season. Uh, but um, I think that with, uh, and you made a great point, Matthew, regarding the Patriots. I, and I, I think I said this heading into the season when we were talking uh, as a preview aspect uh, to the, to the bill season and their schedule is uh, the Patriots having three months to figure their team out. Uh, is not good for the Bills, uh, that they get both of those games in uh, December. So, um, or I guess, one, I'm sorry, in December or January, because uh, the game is uh, the regular season finale is the uh, the home game against the Patriots on either January 7th or 8th. Uh, that's TBD. But um, anyways, this that's, that's just the schedule work. Jonah, I know you, want, you wanted to jump in there. Well, I did, I did want to follow up just on – the betting window thing that Matt had introduced earlier related to what you just said. Like if you do still believe that the bills are what you believe they were a month or two ago, Super Bowl favorites, their odds have now dropped from for the first time all year, not being the odds on Super Bowl favorites, which I think is an accurate reflection of how people around the NFL probably think about the pecking order in the AFC and the NFL right now. But if you still think this team is, you know, that team that you thought they were a month ago, you have a much better, I don't. I yeah, don't. Right. I, nobody, probably nobody does. And, and it would be an interesting, you know, psychological study about the person that's believed the Bills were Super Bowl champions all year long, but has been waiting for the perfect moment to strike in the betting market, knowing it was coming and knowing when to wait it out and not doing it after a previous loss. But anyways, and I think a lot of that reflects how well Kansas City's playing and that they look like a juggernaut again. And that loss to the Bills earlier in the season doesn't really seem to affect you know, the perception of who's better than who, but with the bills, you know, I think that this is an important game for the standings. If they go fall to zero and three in the division, that would be pretty significant. And in chasing Kansas city for home field advantage and seeding in the playoffs, but in the overall referendum of a season, 
they're coming off that two games in five days, and this will be three games in 12 days with all of the injuries and illnesses they're dealing with and the swoon in the season. I mean, I think it would be fair to expect a schedule loss to happen at some point. It didn't happen in the last two games, even though there seemed to be points in the game when, you know, the Lions and the Browns were going to win. And it looked like the schedule and the practices and the traveling and the snow was going to catch up with the Bills. And this might be the game where it does catch up with the Bills, kind of like playing that third game in four nights type feel in a different sport. And I don't think that's going to be a disaster for the Bills season if they happen to lose this game to the Patriots, even though it's, ooh, it's the Patriots and Bill Belichick. They can still finish strong, but it's going to put them in a tough place standing-wise if they drop this one. I just want to point this out because it's something that I've looked up and I've tried to find out how rare it is that a team plays uh, three games in 12 days all on the road. Now, I think that is significant, Um, but it it sounds worse than it is when you just say three games in 12 days. Usually there's a home game mixed in. Of course, the game against Cleveland was supposed to be in Orchard Park, but teams play three games in 12 days all the time. That is the same window of a Sunday, Sunday, Thursday game. So if you play two Sundays in a row and a Thursday, that's three games in 12 days. Now, what throws this out of whack is the three road games, number one, and also that weirdness of a Thursday is supposed to be the one-off, and then you're given the extra days to reset. The Bills have back-to-back Thursday games, which is rarer, but still does happen. Uh, It's happened, I think, five or six times since 2000 that a team will play back-to-back Thursday games. Um, Again, usually one of those is at home, not always. But yeah, this has to be just a totally off-kilter organization in terms of their ability to get into a rhythm at practices. Sean McDermott talked about that after the game. It's the second week in a row that he's uh, bemoaned a lack of fundamentals on both sides of the ball. And so I asked him, I said, how, does the, how do these things creep into a team? These are professionals. It's at the end of November. Why, why are we talking about fundamentals? And his answer was lack of practice. For one, uh, you don't, the practice time is important. And they missed that Friday practice uh, for Detroit and things have just been kind of strange. Brian Dable they, went to full pads practice. today. They, they didn't practice because of illness two days before all the snow came. Right. So they had. But then it also throws, you know, and I, I asked Roger Saffold this after the, the Browns game that was moved to Detroit. I mean, what are, are, is all this stuff overrated? Also, we're talking about how strange this is, but it also the Tennessee Titans a couple of years ago miss a week and a half of practice and just dominate the Bills 40, you know, 41 to whatever it was. Um, the Bills, when they went and played the Jets, Doug Marone versus Rex Ryan at Ford Field uh, in 2014. 38 to three, the Bills stomped the Jets. Uh, the Bills won, um, although it was tight on the scoreboard because the Browns scored a couple of garbage touchdowns. That was a clear victory for the Bills, despite all the hardship that they went through to move the game. So sometimes these games get moved, and you wonder is all this shit overrated of preparation and routine? And uh, but, anyways, I, I just, that's a lot I mean, of word salad. They're there. Pull gonna, out whatever you want to talk about. They're not going to ever admit it because, I mean, these these football coaches, you know, form their identity around how often they're in the office, right? Like they're going right. to sleep on the couch all week and kiss their kids goodbye on Monday and see them after the game on Sunday and burn the midnight oil and find every little advantage that they can find 
it would be fascinating. It would be impo somewhat impossible to do uh, a data set that we'll never get, but to find what is the exact right amount of practice, because everybody assumes that you do it the one way the, you got to study X number of hours of film and practice X number of times to have the optimal performance. Because of course, in a meritocracy like the NFL, the harder you work, the better results you'll get. But as you're pointing out, it's not always about that. And I think it bleeds into an interesting point about this game that I'm wondering about. I, I probably won't watch the game, but uh, maybe eventually I'll catch some of it. Because you're going to be covering the Colorado Avalanche the hockey, the Sabres, not because you're any, is it, right. just in not case anybody I'm fast forwarded too right. much into the podcast. It's not, <laughs> not, not because anybody I just think don't, you, yeah, you just brought on a disinterested uh, guest who couldn't care less about any of this. But, uh, It'll be on people's phones and iPads in the press box. If you want to, I was wondering if they right. might throw some highlights up on the on the big screen or something. But if um, they suit the fans, sure. If Josh, but I don't Allen, know if it's allowed. I don't know how much of it, how much it's allowed to like carry it live or anything like that. But I still think it would be a decent night of sports if you went to the hockey game. It's probably going to be over around, you know, late second quarter of the football game, pop over to one of the bars downtown. You watch the second half. I don't know. Maybe some people will do that. I doubt very many will, but what I'm interested in, it is in a school is, night. Oh, no, they, I've seen, I've been down there. There was a game when Terod Taylor was the Bills quarterback playing against new England on Sunday night. You, I'm sure you guys covered it. And remember what year that was. And there was a Sabres game that I went over to seven, one, six, and it was packed with Sabres fans and Sabres jerseys all of a sudden turning it, you know, rooting for the bills and doing the shouts on it was an interesting scene kind of seeing the sabers crowd blending into the bills crowd yeah you can double dip realistically with a seven o'clock start uh it wouldn't you know it's different because it's bills patriots and the bills are what the bills are now but in that preparation uh word salad we were we were tossing there i think uh the so last as, year, as we as we like to do yeah you know just putting together a cornucopia of, of words. Ken Dorsey, a human caterpillar of uh, <laughs> human centipede of roundabout. Yeah. Human centipede <laughs> of roundabout uh, discussion. So Ken Dorsey has been a, a hot topic, right? And again, one of these things that's hard to really know the impact, but last year you had Brian Dable on an absolute heater going along with Josh Allen on a, on a heater of his own. They were hitting on all the easy throws, finding all the easy answers, making something out of nothing in a lot of cases, turning bit players into stars, like you saw with Isaiah McKenzie. And Brian Dable, the game planner, against Bill Belichick, with whom he's very familiar. You know, some might say, well, Belichick's you know, just as familiar with Dable. Yes and no. Like he didn't, Dable still, you know, was relatively young as an offensive coordinator and still evolving and figuring himself out. Dable was pretty intimately familiar with the preparation habits, with the defense of Bill Belichick. And I wonder if that did give them a little bit of a, an extra edge there. He was dealing with a quarterback who is, you know, unlike very many quarterbacks we've seen in NFL history. So he's able to do things with his offense and put stress on New England's defense in ways that I don't think every offensive coordinator is necessarily capable of. And I think that's a big test for Ken Dorsey to assume 
like, yes, I know the Patriots defense fell off the map last year and the bills owned them. They very well could do the same thing towards the tail end of this year, but they, they have some talented players on that defense. This bill's offense is not the same. The offensive line is not playing particularly well they're still scoring a lot though there are all these things that we can look at and say ah that doesn't look as sharp as last year Stefan Diggs and I wrote about it and I think um, maybe I should have drawn more attention to it because I'm about to say I think it slid under the radar because maybe the game was on Thanksgiving and there's other things that you don't have the usual post-game post-mortem uh, that you go through, but Stefan Diggs said a few things that I think were uh, were eye opening. Uh, it's not as though he was demanding a trade uh, out of Minnesota because they're handing the ball too much to um, Dalvin Cook, uh, but he did make a mention that this offense is getting more balanced than it than it's been, and the passing game has lost its sharpness, and that they need a couple more throws early. And Stefan Diggs saying it at a news conference, and we're all kind of sitting there, and we were familiar with Stefan Diggs' voice. I don't think it hit like it did to a lot of ears, like it did mine. Um, but he pointed that out, and he also said that he worries about Josh Allen's body language, and that he so Stefan Diggs is pointing it out, and he he also he didn't let himself off the hook. He said he missed some too. He he had a couple drops, and he's been doing that more than you would expect uh, from one of the best contested ball receivers in the NFL. Um, he's, he has left some plays on the field. Um, but I thought it was an eye opener that Stefan Diggs pointed all these things out at a news conference that him was, he was admitting that the, that the passing offense is not as good as it used to be and it needs to get better. Uh, he didn't lay blame last, anywhere, but I think just think- him saying it is, is significant. And I just asked you, Tim, because you were at these games. Do you think that is maybe the theme of the conversation he had with Sean McDermott on the sideline? And both of them have been kind of coy about what was said. But if you think about the context of the game, that was what was going on. They weren't throwing. That could be, although it was, it was, that's a heat of the moment thing too. That may be a situation where either of those guys in that moment, because so much is going on and the, the amount of energy and frustration that goes in it. And Sean McDermott's got, people talking in his ear, the game is going on at this time. I wouldn't be surprised or I wouldn't find it disingenuous if we were to sit Sean McDermott and Stefan Diggs down right now and say, what did you guys talk about? And either of them say, you know, I'm not really sure I remember. Um, because I, th- yeah. I think McDermott was just trying to get through a moment and do it as best as he could. And probably saying things along the lines of, look, you're going to get your chances. I mean, because Sean McDermott, as the defensive-minded coach that he is, is no under no uh, has no ability at that moment to say, "Steph, we're going to you on the next series," or you know, he's not going to say all these things, or you're going to get you know, this, or this is going to happen. Um, that is, but that also should be noted. That happened during the Cleveland game. That was not the Detroit game. So Stephon Diggs' frustration, which we saw on the telecast, I didn't catch it during the game. Uh, because I was at it and I wasn't looking there at that time, but it was shown and it became uh, a part of the discussion in, you know, on ESPN and everywhere else. Uh, if you did see it and those guys were asked about it uh, afterwards. Um, but that happened during the Cleveland game. And then it was still 
Stefan Diggs talking about it five days later uh, after the Lions game, his, his not frustrations, he wasn't angry about it, but he still was voicing his concern uh, about it. And he did it in a very diplomatic way. And as I said, in such a way, because we've gotten used to hearing Stefan Diggs talk, and I don't think that they necessarily did in Minnesota. So when Stefan Diggs talked, it was a lot of, you know, it was trade demand type stuff. He wanted out. Uh, you knew he was upset. You'd see the outbursts on the sideline, that type of stuff. Bill's fans and Bill's reporters have gotten used to Stefan Diggs as a human being. He's a very likable guy. We've, we have not seen any of whatever was built up within his reputation in Minnesota. Uh, so the, he's been disarming uh, in that regard. So I think him saying those things like he did after the Lions game didn't resonate. And had he said those in Minnesota, it would have been probably front page headlines. It would have been the lead to the story. Bills win, but receiver questions offense or passing game. Uh, he, again, that would have been over the top. But I think, uh, I think that there's more to it than just, oh, yeah, that was an interesting thing that Stefan Diggs said um, after, the, after a victory, no less. You remember Stefan Diggs didn't talk after a single game last year, which might not be relevant to anything we're talking about, but. I thought maybe that's worth pointing out. And so yeah, he talks on Wednesdays. He's one of those guys that, uh, you know, the bills I think would like for him to talk more. The media would love for him to talk more because he's really engaging. It's enjoyable uh, to, to, to deal with Stefan Diggs. Uh, I've been talking with him at his locker, which I think in years past was almost a no, no, um, not because of any rules or anything. He just wasn't open to it. Um, he's just, kind of he's been a lot more relaxed uh this year and i think that that's why and he's a captain you know he's a leader all these things uh, he's been around he's done it he's accomplished it he's an all pro he's a thousand yard receiver for the third straight season as a bill and all that stuff um so i think but i think when he said what he did after the game on thursday um to me it was eye opening and I probably should have had it higher in my story. I, I was probably halfway through in which I pointed out that he was, that he's concerned. I, I don't, I don't think he's making demands or anything like that, but it's, it's almost to me like, and again, I don't want people to misinterpret. Um, I think this is a good thing to me. It's reminiscent of a conversation and I've said it on this podcast before I've mentioned it in passing. Um, it was late in the season at what was used to be known as the Pepsi center. Uh, out in Amherst, the Sabres had a practice out there, and I was walking out to the parking lot with Daniel Briere. It was an interview. It was on the record, and he's, we stopped at the door because a lot of times, you know, you don't know if a guy, if he's got time, whatever. Daniel Briere had really little kids at the time, so he's in his street clothes. He's walking to his car, but he stopped at the door before going outside. He wanted to say some things. And he expressed that he didn't think that the Bills were, or that the Sabres were ready, that they are not playoff ready, that this team has taken it too easy, that they're not, um, they, they, you can't just flip a switch in hockey. You have to start getting playoff ready before the playoffs begin, all that type of stuff. So it was kind of a way of delicately calling out his teammates um, without, you know, stabbing anybody in the back. And I think that's kind of what Diggs was doing. It was a leadership thing. I don't think he was whining, uh, but I think it was notable what he said uh, that 
this offense is from the past. Uh, yes, it's great that that Devin Singletary is running the ball well, and the offense is balanced, and all the good things that come along with that. But this passing offense is starting to slip, and something's got to be done about it. I think what's fair to point out here. They're dealing with different expectations than they were last year, and their bar is so much higher because of what you talked about with the way Josh Allen finished last season. He, he just couldn't miss. He couldn't do any wrong for a while. And Even last, they won the, their most crushing loss, Josh Allen was borderline flawless. He was unbelievable, and they, that gave them a chance in every game. And when that fastball isn't there, you, the flaws are a little bit more apparent. To Stefan Diggs's point about maybe things not being as sharp, I think it's worthwhile to point out that they're going to play this game against the Patriots on December 1st. They played the wind game against the Patriots on December 6th last year. It felt, in the context of when you think back to last season, that felt early in the season for the Bills because of how big a step they took at halftime of that Buccaneers game, which was a week later. And the way they really, you know, hit the gas pedal in the final month and a half of the season. So while it seems like a restless time that they really need to get this figured out, even Stefan Diggs thinks it is still relatively early. There is still time and there is, there's time to flip the switch, uh, as Danny Breer would have put it. And it's probably a little bit easier to do in football. You get it rolling for a couple of weeks, you get healthy and things can go well. And they are still eight and three. It's not as if last year they lost to the Patriots and that dropped them to what? I mean, they were out of first place at that point. So even, you know, what seemed like a five alarm fire after that game and the first half of the Buccaneers game, they were able to figure it out. It's not to say it's automatically going to happen or that they can sleepwalk through the whole season and just get ready for the playoffs. There are some flaws with this team that I think are more glaring than what they had a season ago, but time still to get healthy, figure things out. And certainly even if they lose on Thursday night, I'm sure it'd be a very similar reaction to what we saw when they lost to the Patriots in that Monday night win game where it was Holy smokes, like what's going on with the bills and as weird a game as it was, it, you know, put the Patriots in, a, in the driver's seat and it was like, here we go again. But all it takes when you have that quarterback is that he finds it again. And maybe if his elbow's not feeling 100 percent and it gets there eventually, who knows? It's a it's it's a long it's it's a long season. It, it's striking how the waves are coming for fans uh, when you see it on social media and it bleeds through to the Sabres. I feel like because last night they lose to the lightning and, you know, Jonah and I were talking about it in the press box. It's like, if they just finish that game a little bit differently and win, the conversation is so different. And that is a bizarre thing for one out of 82 games for the conversation to train, change that drastically among five fans, and a half but, minutes. But well, instead, right? it's an it's an easy narrative, right? It's they blew a lead. They here we go again. They suck like they always do. They can't close games. They have terrible goaltending. You know, all the same. You can blow it up and have the takes as a fan. 
And it's not as it's not real popular or engaging necessarily to say, hey, it's just one out of 82 games. They play pretty well. And let's see what happens on Wednesday, you know, but that's the reality of what these guys do, you know, and I'm still learning the rhythm of an NHL season and how it all uh, how all the puzzle pieces fit together behind the scenes. But it's very apparent that they there's no choice but to turn the page. Right. Like, OK, we blew that lead like we better learn from it. And people hate to hear that. But uh, it is interesting that the the discussion around losses can be that extreme even for hockey it's tenfold with football when they lose a game or they don't play well the social media chatter gets gets pretty crazy and pretty uh pretty dark people go to some bad places with their team and it's even worse with the savers people are reflexively going to that place just to point out a couple things you mentioned record-wise with the bills it was the same week in the season they lose to the patriots to be seven and five at this point, they'd be eight and four or nine and three, depending on the results of this game. And the Sabres, so they're get the overtime point last night. They have 19 points in 22 games. They had 19 points after game 22 a year ago. But this team's playing a lot different than they were last year. And the narratives around the team are different. But as you mentioned, they lose a game, they lose a late lead to the Lightning, which I think they did two or three times a year ago. And I did it earlier this month, even. It seems like more of the same, same old Sabres, even though there's a lot of reasons, specifically offensively, that this team isn't playing like the same old Sabres. I think what's interesting about these Sabres, too, is uh, as I have uh, two teenagers in my house who've put together Christmas lists, uh, they have players that uh, you want to wear their gear. That's something that the Sabres were bad, and then they also were just kind of like, let's get rid of some of these guys you know, what Tage Thompson is doing and, and Rasmus Dahlin coming into his own and, uh, you know, even Skinner and Tuck with what they, they're at a point a game, uh, per, uh, pace. Yeah, they are. Um, I'm sorry. No, I said Skinner, Tuck, Thompson and Dahlin are all at a point. Yeah. Game. Thompson's way above. He's got 14 goals and 14 assists in, in the 22 games, but four um, players. When's the last time the Sabres had four players averaging a point a game? Yeah. It's all, they're, they're, they're fun with the exception of that, that, that slump for a few games there, but um, H. Thompson you, is the most exciting player they've had since Jack in, Eichel. Since Jack Eichel, but maybe even more exciting than Jack Eichel, frankly. Like he's he's different than Jack Eichel. Um, he, the way he plays, the, the, his size. He's a guy that is consistently doing things, and Jack Eichel did too, to an extent. There, I don't. You know, Jack Eichel's probably a better player, I suppose. Uh, but how long he remains a better player, I think, is actually a legitimate question. And nobody, when they traded Jack Eichel, would have said, ah, that's fine, Tage Thompson will be right there with him 12 months from now. Nobody would have said that. And right now, I think you could have an argument. You'd probably still come down on the side of Eichel, but it seems almost nightly, you know, outside of Buffalo in hockey social media, there's people being like, holy smokes, like, look at what Tage Thompson just did. So from that standpoint, just like an exciting to watch, watching a six foot seven guy do what he does around the net and do what he's able to do, handling the puck feels like one of the most, it feels like a reason to go to the rink for a lot of people, um, which has been, you know, as Tim pointed out, not really, you know, it's been hard to draw people in. I think it's been hard to have kids putting gear on their list for Christmas, like who do you pick? Right. Like when Jack Eichel was gone, 
and they're trading away all these big time players. Even Reinhardt, Reinhardt is productive as he was. He just was not endearing uh, to the fans. I think the fans generally liked him, but you know, there weren't people going out there and buying those jerseys. I'm guessing there, there there weren't a lot of Reinhardt jerseys in the stands. There was no Cody Eakin jerseys on Christmas list this time last year, you know, and Darlene was still in kind of a weird spot in his career where people were wondering what would become of him. And so I do think it's sometimes important to isolate the variables in a season like this and remind, go back and say, okay, at the beginning of the season, if the Sabres got to 85 points and narrowly missed the playoffs, but JJ Paterka, Dylan cousins, Jack Quinn, Rasmus Dahlin, Owen power, Tage Thompson, you know, Alex Tuck all had seasons that made you excited about the future. Most people would have said that's pretty good. You know, that's a fine year for the Sabres. That's sort of how it's playing out right now. They're still very much within striking distance of an 85-ish point season, maybe a little better if they get hot. J.J. Paterka, Dylan Cousins, and Jack Quinn are all playing on the second line, and they look fantastic for the last week. That top line looks great. Tage Thompson looks like a bona fide superstar. $7 million a year looks like a, a pretty good deal for him. you got Rasmus Dahlin. Probably going to work his way into the Norris Trophy conversation. Owen Power will probably be in the Calder Trophy conversation. And so, yeah, same results are the same, as Jonah pointed out, right? Like, you know, 19 points in 22 games. It's been a weird start, and they were without Matias Samuelson for a while. They're not getting the best goaltending. There are things to figure out. There's a big gap between where they are now, where they need to be, and that's going to require some outside additions. It's going to require Kevin Adams to to open up the checkbook next summer and support these young players with veterans who can, you know, make it a little bit easier for Don Granado to balance out his lineup. But the individual variables that you wanted to see as a Sabres fan, I feel like most of them are right there. Would it have been great if Casey Middlestat be had a Tage Thompson like leap? Sure, but you know that's not really uh, in the cards. Victor Olofsson and Casey Middlestad have been uneven on five on five. That third line, not even really the third line anymore in terms of playing time, has not been that great. Uh, the defense has been uneven. The, the goaltending is still a problem. There are What needs to be done about the goaltending? I don't know. That I think there are do... people who are ready to give up on Ukapeka Lukanen already. See, I just can't really wrap my head around that when there were people a week ago or a week and a half ago screaming in the 300 level and screaming on Twitter that it was time to bring him up and see what you it have. It goes back to that comment that you guys, or that sentiment last night, uh, you and Jonah were talking about five and a half minutes uh, made a big difference in, in how we view not only the Sabres, but UPL. This was the reason they didn't want UPL in the NHL just yet. Not because he'll never be good, but because the path that he was on, the injuries he's had, he hasn't played a ton of AHL games. Uh, it's not unusual for him to get another full season of AHL games and be, you know, closer. Uh, you know, a lot of goalies play a lot in the AHL. Ryan Miller played a ton in college, then played a ton in the AHL, and then got to Buffalo. It's what needs to be done about the goaltending situation, in my opinion, is that you you're getting a great look at UPL right now. He's going to have some ba- some not great games like last night. He'll have some pretty good games. He's getting a nice little window. When Eric Comrie comes back and he's fully healthy, you don't need to rush it because maybe UPL is playing well and you ride the wave. If he's not, 
and Comrie's healthy, you plug him back in. And it's maybe the best thing for Comrie because he's a workaholic type uh, who's always staying extra on the ice. Now he got a chance to take a step back, assess what that early season was like for him. First time as a starter, first time handling those minutes. Give him another shot to see, okay, what is this guy? Uh, is he for sure the answer? I can't sit here and say that he is, but am I going to, just like with UPL, going to sit here after a dozen games or whatever and say he's absolutely not an NHL goalie? Like, I don't think that's fair either. So as long as Craig Anderson is healthy and can spell those two guys, that's a pretty good situation. You just want to learn what you have, both in Comrie and UPL, as much as possible going into the offseason, because I think you're going to need to sign, you know, spend some money probably on a goalie. Because I think what I can already start to see happen is that people are ready for Devin Levi like in March to jump in here and jump into the NHL net. And I just don't think that's the path that he's on. I don't think that lines up with the way the Sabres have done anything with their young players. I would expect that in a best-case scenario for the Sabres, he's signed and playing in Rochester in the spring. Uh, Obviously, the best case scenario is to get him under contract as soon as you can so you don't end up with another, you know, they're sitting in limbo with Portillo right now because he can hit free agency after this season. Levi's still a year away from that, but given the way he's performed, there's a, an understandable urgency to get him under contract. But that doesn't mean that it's like, all right, Levi's signed and it's fixed. Throw him in the NHL. Like That's probably how you break that kid, uh, especially if you're not ready to you know, contend. So it's a, it's a feeling out process for the rest of the season. And then next year you figure out, you know, maybe you go sign somebody, maybe you swing a trade. You're in a spot closer to what like Detroit thought they were in this off season where they go out and get Billy Huso or Edmonton went out and got Jack Campbell. It's a weird position in the league in general, because it, there's some randomness to it and it's a hard one for teams to pinpoint, but I don't think it's a it's it's not been their strength. I just don't think that's like the one glaring thing. Like if they just went out and signed a goalie this offseason, this team would be in third place. Like I don't they were missing three of their top six defensemen for a while. They were missing Matias Samuelson. You know, Eric Comrie was put in some weird tough spots and UPL could have had a couple last night, but a few of them were were pretty tough too, and he wasn't even necessarily supposed to be up at this point in the season. So I'm not pushing the panic button just yet, but it's very clear that they don't have a firm answer at the moment. This season's about finding out. And, you know, if it puts you in a spot, I don't think they were sitting there thinking with the youngest and cheapest roster in the NHL that they were going, they needed a goalie. And that would be the answer to carry the youngest, cheapest roster in the NHL into the playoffs. I think that makes more sense timeline wise next off season, unless some weird opportunity presents itself where there's a young goalie entering his prime that's available via trade and it's too good to pass up. But uh, that usually those guys get locked up pretty quick. One thing they could do to get better goaltending is start Craig Anderson a little more often. Maybe that's not feasible at his age. It's probably not their plan, but he's their best goalie and only play in once every third game, really does seem like they're willing to ramp him up a little bit more, but they haven't gotten 
you know, they've had a lot of back-to-backs recently. They had the three games and four nights last week. They have three games and four nights this week. But I agree. You know, it's it's a matter of – and it was at the beginning of the season, I was talking to some people about, like, they were going to be in a weird position either way. Like, let's say Craig Anderson had caught lightning in a bottle and played outside of his mind to be able to carry the team. Like, what if the team was good enough to sneak into the playoffs and Craig Anderson is clearly your best goalie but he can only go once every three games. You know, he would have to play. He would have to empty the tank and and really give you everything he had. Don Granado did mention that as the season goes on, they feel more comfortable getting him into more games because goalies, especially at Anderson's age, you know, you don't have the same ability to train and get into regular season shape as a skater just in the sense that you don't get to see as much live action. Um, it's hard to simulate in your off-season training. And so he actually felt the more the season went on, the more they would be able to turn to Craig Anderson a little bit more frequently. And I think that's probably the best answer at the moment. But if he gets hurt, you're you're in a really tough spot. You know, Especially you're- if he and Comrie are hurt at the same time, you're in a really, really bad goal. You think it's bad now, then it... it it would get ugly if he wasn't available, even for those once every three or whatever. Do you, do you sense that there is any urgency or anxiety, whether it's changing the strategy with the goaltenders or making a trade or making some sort of roster move to get short-term results instead of whatever was planned for the long-term development of this team and what they wanted to do in the net? Do you think they might make a move that would make them better in the short term, but it doesn't? quite fit the preseason plan for the long term. I think they would if it was a younger player that they're getting back in return. Um, You know, if they were going to create short-term results and sacrifice long-term, the time to do it, if that was going to be Kevin Adams' instinct that he was going to panic and do that, he would have done it when all the defensemen were hurt. You know, that would have been the the most obvious time to do it. But I think consistent with what, if he stays consistent with what he said, you know, then it's going to have to be a move where that player is also relatively young and not just some, you know, 29 year old rental, uh, somebody who they could fit into their plan and move some of their assets and bump the timeline up a little bit. But I don't know. I'd be, I'll be interested to see how Kevin Adams handles the rest of the season and into next offseason because it's starting to get to the point where, I mean, fans are a little restless about this team because it's just more losing and it's more of the same. But there's an understanding that this wasn't going to be another year with a really young roster and some some growing pains. But I think next year is where that leeway starts to run out just a little bit where you have all this cap room and you've got all these assets developing in the minors. And you're just at some point you have to start to push the timeline ahead, but they both got contract extensions right before the start of the season. So there, there was an understanding not only of their plan, but that they would have time to execute the plan the way that they see fit. So be interested to see if they swing a deal at some point to get a, maybe a young player who's, you know, needs a change of scenery. Uh, the defenseman in Arizona has, you know, his name has popped up. He's been wanting out of there for a while. He's still young, 24. He'd be, 
you know, a huge boost to their blue line. Um, but you know, are they going to part with multiple first round picks or a first round pick and a big time prospect? That's where you'll start to learn about Adams as a general manager, I think, because as big a deal, the Eichel deal was huge. And I thought he, he did pretty well on that. But other than that, it's been a lot of subtracting and drafting, right? Subtracting players, drafting players, signing very low, uh, low risk deals, low exposure deals where you're just like, Eric Comrie, if that doesn't work out, well, you only paid him short money. Ilya Labushkin, same thing. You know, handing out these big contracts to players that they've drafted and developed or in Tage Thompson's uh, case, traded for and developed. But still getting to, uh, to nut-cutting time at some point where the moves are going to be a little bit more big time. You know, they're going to be more heavily scrutinized and there's it could go one way or the other. And some point you gotta gotta stick your neck out the bills were that way you know that was stefan diggs right you know signing mitch morris that that big free agent uh off season they had and then getting Diggs the next year at some point you need to make those moves to say all right here's the window starting to open let's crack it open a little bit wider well, the bills made some of those moves right away jordan poyer micah hyde and they backed their way in but they make the playoffs the first year with mcdermott what i think is weird about the sabers is they're already have a record playoff drought and it's going to be extended to 12 seasons this year. And there's really seems to be no urgency. that's like, this has to end this year. And I don't even know how much feeling there is that it has to end next year. Although maybe the fans feel that way. Yeah, that's where maybe Tim in... feels that way. What's no, I think at this point, I, you know, the, the team's been losing a lot of money. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, teams in the NHL generally aren't very profitable on a year-to-year basis. You need to make the playoffs to turn a profit. And Terry Pagula seems to be, as Matthew pointed out, with those contract extensions for both Kevin Adams and Don Granado to start the season, willing to be patient and uh, keep eating, eating money. And I know that that's led to a lot of people speculating that Terry Pagula's got the team on the on the block and, um, I don't think that's true based on what I've been told and also anecdotally in conversations I've had with Terry Pagula at, at the NFL owners meetings back in March. We had a, a, a lengthy off-the-record conversation about his excitement about uh, the Sabres moving forward. It wasn't as though he was trying to pitch me or trying. he was talking for the sake of a story. It was that uh, Matthew, was, you were even there because uh, you were still an NFL writer at the time. Um, you're at the NFL's owners meetings. Uh, in fact, was uh, I'll, I'll say it. I'll, I'll tell people how the sausage was made. I was having such a good conversation with Terry. I sent Matthew to go fetch me a drink because I didn't want to uh, uh, leave the conversation and, and then have to reinsert myself. You know, it's the art of the schmooze, I guess. But uh, anyways, uh, Terry was talking about J.J. Paterka being, uh, you know, a, a a bright spot and all these players that he was looking forward to seeing there. This was not a guy who's selling the team. Anyways, that's a little, I digress. Um, I, I think it's a guy who's willing to be patient and he clearly trusts these guys. And I think whether for good or for ill, you know, I think we've, we've had that discussion before about um, if trusting people you like is, is uh, can be more dangerous than maybe being a little wary of, of somebody who's willing to tell you no or, or go against the grain. Uh, but Terry Pagula has people that he trusts, much like it took Ralph Wilson a long time to find the people that he trusted. That never did work out. 
um, because that turned out to be Russ Brandon and, and, uh, and a handful of other uh, insiders who'd been there with him through the Super Bowl years. And, you know, um, Terry Pagula seems to have found guys he likes and they're clearly being patient. And all you need to do is look at how they address the goaltending situation uh, heading into this season as proof that this was not a win at all costs mentality. And I don't think that you can necessarily flip that switch. I mean, the Sabres are going to have to show an awful lot for the remainder of this season and particularly down the home stretch as a team that is worth going all in on. This is a slow build. Unlike, you know, you know, again, the New Jersey you, Devils, you, they could have done what the Devils did. Devils made right. a few key moves. One of them being a goaltender that's helped them and they took a big leap. Yeah, but you mentioned with the Bills added, backing in with that that's Sean McDermott's first season there, you know, with Terod Taylor. And, you know, that was a borderline accident uh, in which right. Sean McDermott tried to <laughs> short circuit it a couple of times with Nathan Peterman. Uh, but uh, anyways, um, the only thing I just don't see the, the Sabres made that year midseason. That Brandon Bean did adjust and say, OK, got to feel the pulse of my team. We got a shot to make the playoffs. And at the deadline, he traded for Kelvin Benjamin. So it seemed like a big deal. And it was not. It was it did not help very much at all. So I think the big thing for me with the Sabres, and I understand that people have a Kelvin lot of Benjamin, success. a guy he knew, by the way. Right. And it did I not mean, work I think out. that's a that's an element of that that's kind of interesting. It's not just like I need somebody, I'm gonna try, I'm just gonna hope I get, you know, he thought that he could fix that. And anyways. He cut him like 12 months later, or maybe less. Uh but it was the, so it was like a rental move. It was a let's make. Well, he a, cut him because it didn't work. Yeah, they, he had a contract that he could have stayed for a little longer, but it just wasn't working. And Benjamin kind of washed out of the league. But they made probably more moves that offseason to make their team worse in the short term. Yes, you know, Poyer, Hyde, uh, they made some of those moves, but getting rid of Watkins, uh, you know getting rid of Darby, getting rid of they, Darius. You know, they were kind of slowly. They continued they, to unload Gilmore, the Doug they Whaley draft picks. Yeah. You know, Gil, Gilmore, they didn't re-sign. They made no effort. So, you know, there's always going to be the comparisons to the Bills and wh- which stage are they at. And I think they are still in the 2017 stage. You know, I know last year wasn't very good for the Sabres either, but I think this is – Hockey is just a different sport and how you build your team and how quickly you can do it, how big a role free agency plays. It's a very different sport. And I think you just have to, it's hard when you have scars of an 11 year playoff drought and you've seen rebuilds fail. And it's hard to tell fans like, Hey, just be patient, man. It's like, yeah, I've been being patient. It's, you know, 11 years that this team hasn't been in the playoffs. I've been about as patient as a hockey fan can be, but that has nothing to do with Don Granado and Kevin Adams and what they're trying to do. And if you, I think the worst mistake you can make, and it's the same with the bills is to sit there and say, because of what happened the last 11 years, now, Kevin Adams, you need to do this or Don Granado, you need to do this. I think that's the worst mistake you can make. I know that it, the context matters to the fans and it matters to the people who pay for tickets and watch this team every night. But if you're ever going to break that cycle, I think the way that you do it is to try to do it, you know, the right way. Could that fail? Could they pick the wrong players with these draft picks or fail to develop guys? Sure. Do they need to have some urgency to win at some point? 
yes. I think there's plenty of urgency in the locker room. I, I don't think they're okay with how last night went. They were pretty upset. They were pretty angry at, you know, there's plenty of emotion in that game. Darlene was pretty pissed off at Kucherov going after their goalie. They were, they're not going through the motions as a group of players, but at the same time to say, well, just trade your trade a first round draft pick and get, you know, whatever the equivalent of Taylor Hall is floating around the league and plug him in. It's just Kelvin Benjamin, the Kelvin Benjamin of, of the, you know, Taylor Hall and Kelvin Benjamin were part of it too. I think part of it too, is like, they don't want to block. If they had gone out and signed a bunch of players, they would have blocked, you know, you're not going to see Jack Quinn and JJ Paterka doing what they're doing because they'd be bumped down the lineup, maybe even be in Rochester. And they didn't want to do that. So I think it's while you don't know how it will play out and you don't know whether Kevin Adams and Don Granado are necessarily the right people for the job, because it's impossible to know that until you see the final product. The only thing you can do really is wait to see how it all plays out and see, okay, what does Kevin Adams do next off season when the urgency should be higher, the bar should be higher and you should say, okay, spend some of that money and start to fill out this lineup get rid of guys that aren't working. Uh, you know, if Casey Middlestat continues down this path or Victor Olofsson, find upgrades, find a, you know, get a deeper lineup, fill out the defensive core, get a goalie. If he sits on his hands for too long, you know, that can be a, a problem too. But we've seen, you know, Tim Murray say, all right, we tanked for a couple of years. We got Jack. Now it's time to put the pedal to the metal and go get Ryan O'Reilly and Robin Lehner and Evander Kane. That didn't work out too good either. So they've committed to a way of building it. And I think the real payoff is still, you know, still to come. Wendy Ruff was pretty complimentary of the Sabres thinking that maybe there'll be things will click for them at some point as Jonah and I were laughing about, he said, it could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be a month from now, but he did not say it could be tonight when they were playing against the devil. That was, he was only set up to talk about Tage Thompson and he pivoted to say, and he, you know, was impressed by the whole Sabres. So they were a lot like them, right? A lot like the devils who you see how teams are. I, I marvel a little bit at Don Granado's ability to see the big picture and his willingness to share his, internal dialogue about the league and he said a couple times this year that he sees the league he sees that there are teams that are going to age out which i think everybody thinks and chats about behind the scenes but for don granado the coach of a team at the bottom of the standings to just say that we all know who he's referring to right you've got the lightning uh you've got um the bruins are a pretty old team uh these teams that have been around washington washington that that are going to age, which is true. They will. And he's basically saying they have to be ready for when that happens and to be one of those young teams that that's coming together because the league is trending so much younger. And so they, it's not like they're just, you know, flying blind and saying, well, if we just get young, it'll, everything will be fine. They have a plan. <laughs> like I said, you know, I can't sit here and tell you for sure that it's going to work, but there's a, a thought process that seems a little bit more well put together than what was here previously. I didn't cover those teams, but from the stories I've heard, this seems like it's a little bit more, uh, you know, aligned and, and put together and they've got, 
some pieces that they didn't have then. So we'll see how it goes. But in the short term, it's going to be a a little bit of a bumpy ride. They're going to have some great nights and great runs, and then they're going to have some moments that show that they've got 20-year-olds skating all over the place. So you don't think they should sign Odell Beckham? Well, if you... (laughs) I'd like to see it. It would be, it would certainly be good for business. Uh, that would be the biggest name on the roster for sure. Although it could be an issue with all the uh, flights and all the, you know, all those road, that's 41 road games. Yeah. He's not uh, good in the on the NHL. plane, it seems. Uh, he's Although not too charter good flight attendants maybe are a little less um, strict uh, with your seatbelt. You know, they might not come along and, and check it as rigorously on a charter flight than they would on American airlines. Um, anything else to talk about? Yeah. Boys? I want to throw something at Tim real quick. While you were having food poisoning in Detroit, you missed nineties night at the arena, which was a fun game as much as the Sabres haven't been that much fun this past month. That was a fun night. But I want you I didn't realize it until Bucky Gleason posted a clip uh, on Twitter. I covered the last game in which they wore those uh, uh, goathead jerseys. That would have been the 2006 Eastern Conference Finals. Oh, is that that picture where you guys are in the press box and it's all of you from the Buffalo News that that would have been that would have I don't know if it was from that series, but it was from that postseason. Well, I wanted to get your perspective as somebody that covered a team in that era when they wore those jerseys, you know, what you thought about seeing them come back. But what do you remember? Because they're so beloved right now. How popular were these uniforms? No, nobody back liked then? them. Yeah. And did anybody use the phrase "goathead" back when these were? Yes. The logo. Okay. Because I, I yeah, don't yeah, the goathead jersey. Yeah, that was that was what they were called. The snorting goat, uh, because you know there was like a I don't know if there was a puff of puff of smoke was just coming from the video scoreboard or if that was yeah. Uh, but anyway, this they didn't do the other night, and there's some good questions in the press room about whether that could be brought back or found in the bowels of the arena no they did they weren't they were disliked because they weren't blue and gold and uh it was uh, a regus thing too so that had negative connotations one of the most wasn't it a seymour knox thing though like he was the one that no it, it was, was adelphia before... cable colors regus changed the team's color scheme to match the adelphia cable color scheme in the video from the night that they're launched Seymour Knox the third is in there saying we needed this change, blah, 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 blah. Well, he was there at was the a, arena. So there was a hostile takeover. Um, now that's not, I don't want to say that there was, um, uh, there was some finagling going on behind the scenes. Regus was a part owner. So I, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the history of that. That was, a, that actually predates, uh, me coming to Buffalo. Um, I came here in January of 2000. Um, so I encourage people to uh, take a look at that uh, because I'm not, uh, none of us uh, were covering uh, sports at that point in Buffalo. Um, but no, they, they were disliked because of the color scheme and one of probably the coolest nights, one of the most kind of um, lump in your throat nights that I've ever covered and this is somebody who didn't grow up with the blue and gold, but was when after Tom Galasano bought the team and Larry Quinn, and they brought out the blue and gold old jerseys at the end of the season, there was rumors going around that they were going to do that. All the players wore them and just, you could feel it in the arena. Um, you also, cause you have to keep in mind, it wasn't just a change of the uniforms back to blue and gold. It was the owner was arrested 
the team was bankrupt. The team might leave. Uh, the NHL had to operate the, the, the team while it was in bankruptcy and didn't have an owner. Tom Galisano kind of emerges with Larry Quinn and bringing back the nostalgia. It was, you could really feel it. And that was one of the coolest nights, maybe the coolest night uh, of a sporting uh, event. And definitely from a regular season standpoint uh, that I've ever covered. And that was a lot of it had to do with just the fans being tired of black and red and they wanted the they wanted the old sabers back i think people just they despised it i kind of felt but it's this is the old thing how about the phoenix coyotes the original phoenix coyotes jerseys which i always thought were pretty cool those were hated you know the old southwest uh, motif with the art and then they came back a few years ago and people were saying this is this is the coolest jersey of all time uh yeah people just love nostalgia and they remember what it was like to cheer for the Sabres when they wore the black and red, uh, because it took a little while for them to phase that out. The NHL didn't just let them immediately go from the black and red to the blue and gold again. So you still had another season or two of Drury and Briere wearing it. You got to see your favorite players, Ryan Miller, wear it. Um, Uh, You know, the video that they did was really cool of uh, Ryan Miller on the motorcycle going around, although they did machine head, as the as the song, they should have done the orchestral version of Rock You Like a Hurricane, which is how all the broadcasts started back then, which would have been cooler, I think. But um, yeah, it was uh, I think there were good memories in seeing it because it brought back the 0506 team, which was maybe the greatest. I don't I'm going to say it was the greatest team in Sabres history. Uh, because that they, that was the team that had the best chance to win the Stanley Cup, even though they didn't make the finals. That's what, and Lindy Ruff agrees with me on that. Um, so yeah, I thought it was really cool, but yeah, it was there. No, nobody gave a damn. Yeah, I feel like the feeling about you, it when they left. Nobody was sad to see those jerseys go. I feel like the feeling you describe when they brought the blue and gold was a little bit of what they had going last week. You know, you had Thanksgiving Eve, you had everybody home, home for the holiday, building was packed, and you saw those uniforms and it was like, oh man, like, remember when the Sabres were 15 years ago, add 15 years ago to the kid who was falling in love with the hockey at that time. And it's probably the highest point of his hockey fandom as a Sabres fan is now old enough to buy those tickets, you know, they're, or, or they're coming home from college. They're on, that's a great spring. That's a great Thanksgiving break game to attend all that type of stuff. Um, so I'm sorry, Joan, I talked over you. No, no, no. I just said Alex Tuck is, which wasn't the point you were making. Yeah. He's somebody that came of age and, and you know, that's the savers of his childhood. Where, But at that time watching it, the fans, they, they hated it. Yeah, it was funny. I talked to the guy that designed it and he was just like loving that they were bringing them back. And he's like, you know, it's the he still loves the design as much now as he did, you know, however many years ago. And he's finally getting his due. Put it that way, because I don't think it was I didn't get that sense either that it was a wildly popular jersey at the time. And certainly if you're the designer and you hear it. Go, it, it's immediately referred to as a goat head when that's not really what you were going for. Uh, right. His line was that hopefully they they 
they're saying that because they mean greatest of all time. And I was like, yeah, no, the yeah, goat maybe. head. In <laughs> fact, you raise a great point. And I just I talked all about it and I talked all around it. The goat head was was um, uh, a pejorative. They called it the goat head because they didn't like the way it looked. If there was pride in it, they would have called it the buffalo head or the whatever. Right. They would have called it something like better. But it was called the goat head uh, at to mock it. Yeah, tough, tough if you're the one who drew it, but he's getting his due now. That's all that matters. Uh, so I hope he got paid at some point. So oh, he's, he was working for some firm that, you know, was working through the league. So he's doing he's doing just fine uh, for himself. Uh, but it was a fun night, fun night at the arena. The only thing missing was everybody's favorite beat reporter from when they wore those black and red jerseys. Bucky Gleason. He's been absent from the press box all season. John Vogel? The fans are really clamoring for his return. Bob DeCesar. Uh, people people always wonder. How about this? Let's think about it for a second. Who on the beat, I can think of Paul, only Paul Hamilton. Maybe there's somebody else. Who actually is still left that covered that team? Nobody at the Buffalo News covered that team. Art Voice. Um, uh, Art voice. Yeah. Does well, art yeah, voice maybe. still exist? How about sports Damn and leisure? Who is uh, who's the sports and leisure Sabres writer? I don't recall. Paul would, would have been there. Right? Hey, Paul uh, is it. What about Duffer? Oh, was John Duffer, Warrow. John was Warrow. Duffer around? Warrow was around. D- uh, Duffer was not around. Marty was playing. Um, so Marty played in it. it. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the PR staff. Everybody. In, that, that, I would say 90% of that press box did not cover that team. And I'm wow. including some of the, uh, you know, there's some other people up there who, who do freelance work that are there. What um, about Benini? Oh, Adam Benini would have been around. Does he attend hockey games? He's been, he was at Jack Eichel game. Was okay. I think, well, no, you're all right. You're saying people that would have covered any, see, I was thinking at the beginning. Yeah. Adam Benini would have, there's probably a few others, but How there's Hoppy lots of people covering these games. Oh, Bill, Bill Hoppy. Hoppy. Bill yeah. Hoppy yeah. Bill Hoppy. Yeah. Bill Hoppy would have also. I mean, right, Mike so there's a few. probably even covered a few games in that era. I don't think I did, but I was in the business. I could have, in theory. I didn't, but, you know, I could have. But it hasn't been quite that long. But Dave Reichert. Right. Yeah, there's. You know, he's and, a freelancer. And Andrew Kulik from Art Voice. He, he was at that game. He, Art Voice used to usually, I think, have two people at the games. Now Andrew Kulik takes. I mean, Faber make the joke, though, because the credential says Art Voice. It doesn't Randy have Randy like Schultz. It could be a Randy name. Schultz still up in the press box. Yep. Yep. And Janet Schultz. Randy and Janet. There's also probably a lot of television crew for MSG that has. Yeah, covered. but that's crew. I'm talking about people who covered it, who went down the locker room and had to deal with talk with these guys and deal with them. And uh, I would still say it's a good 80% of the people up there. Bud Bailey, if he was able to get a credential, would count. He, he's not credentialed? His organization, I don't believe, is credentialed. Hmm. Well, not a lot. All the people in that picture that uh, I've posted of the Buffalo News covering the Sabres in the playoffs, taken by Harry Skull, I believe, who is still around. But it is of Bucky Gleason, John Vogel, Bob DeCesare, Jerry Sullivan, and me. And uh, not only were, were we not there, we didn't, we, we'd been gone for four fucking years. Well, not Johnny. 
I mean, no, I mean, from the Buffalo News. Sure. From the Buffalo News. And at least Jerry Sullivan's still in the writing game. He's been to Sully was at a he's been to more Sabres games yeah. than Tim this year. But when I was in charge of Sully for one week, I said, Say you're covering the Sabres. <laughs> he's been to one. Uh, I got to get out there. I dare you. How about maybe I'll show up Thursday you can... <laughs> in the middle of the Bills game? <laughs> no, I just tell. Yeah, I'll, I just won't cover the Bills that night. I'll cover uh, the Sabres instead. By all means. Plenty of them. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Um, a lot of people, well, not uh, everybody listening who's not named Jonah Bronstein or Tim Graham uh, would not have been aware that Matthew has been waiting for a phone call and was uh, and was in jeopardy of walking right off the podcast at any time, but we survived. The subject is not that eager to call, apparently. And he had a busy day. Oh, hey, let's talk about this real quick. Since we have you. Um, Really cool how your Gilbert Perot story in the NHL 99 series came about. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm fluffing you here a little bit, but I kind of enjoy it. So it's not like it's any kind of work uh, to do. But I thought it was pretty freaking badass for a guy who's been on the beat for about 10 seconds to come in and get Wayne Gretzky on the phone, not through a PR person either, gets Wayne Gretzky's number, sends Wayne Gretzky a text about the subject, gets a call back quickly from Wayne Gretzky to share stories that we couldn't find anywhere. Now, maybe they've been told somewhere, but... I did my damnedest looking at different newspaper archives that I've uh, that I have uh, uh, subscriptions to. We talked to Bucky Gleason about it. Nobody has any recollection of Wayne Gretzky talking about his uh, his adoration of Gilbert Perot for this story. Uh, and I just thought that was really friggin incredible that uh, I never wrote that story. Jim Kelly never wrote that story. Bucky Gleason never wrote that story. Um, and people in whoever in Edmonton covering the team, Jim Matheson and all those guys, nobody, nobody ever got it. Anybody in Brantford, you know, the Toronto media never wrote about it. I, what, what are your thoughts on, on that now that it's been published and, and you pulled that off? Yeah, it was uh, bizarre that it kind of pot like I it's weird because I haven't been covering hockey that's why I was calling you and I was calling Bucky and I was talking to some other people to be like, is this like going to be like Ryan Fitzpatrick wearing his wedding ring on the field? Like it's a story that's been told a hundred times, but I'm, I haven't been paying close enough attention over the years. And I went and dug up his autobiography and uh, all this stuff. And there's passing met reference to Joe bear, but no, nothing real in depth. And it was actually Danny Gare who tipped me off. Uh, and I was talking to him and it was sort of a throw in at the end of the conversation where he was like, you know, I played with Wayne Gretzky and sat next to him in the locker room and we were good buddies. And he would always talk about how much he loved Joe bear Perot and loved the Sabres and all this. And I was like, no kidding. Like, that's wild. Like, and so then it was like, man, it'd be cool to get Wayne on the phone and, you know, found a number and, um, you know, thanks to our vast, uh, network of of hockey writers at the athletic i mean i that's the type of thing that if i don't work at the athletic and i don't have somebody like john vogel you know just pulling off a story like 
Gilbert Perot without the help of, you know, people that have covered this team and the perspective. I, I knew how much he meant to people in Buffalo, but I didn't know nearly enough about him until I reported the story, but I knew how much he meant and I knew I had to get it right. And I was that that's what struck me is that Wayne Gretzky was willing to pick up the phone for somebody that he's never met because it was Gilbert Perot and he wanted that. I know a lot's been written about him and Gordie Howe and Gordie Howe was his guy, but it sounds like Gilbert Perot was right there neck and neck as far as favorite players. And you can see the influence in the style of play. Obviously nobody's ever done it like Wayne Gretzky, but there was more than one, more than just Danny Gare was saying like, man, like Gilbert Perot played like Wayne Gretzky before Wayne Gretzky type of thing. And Wayne took it to another level, but uh, that really helped kind of bring the whole thing together. In addition to, of course, all the, you know, really going back in Sabres history and talking to some people that were still around. And uh, it was fun. It was, it was, there's not that many times where it happens where you're like geeked out when the phone rings and you're like, holy shit. Like, but Wayne Gretzky was definitely one of those moments. Yeah, that was a great job. I just wanted to make sure to mention it here on the podcast. It's the first time you've been on since that story ran. So I just really impressed with that. Uh, great job. Thank you. Appreciate that. Jonah, uh, any, oh, great uh, job. <laughs> let's, uh, let's do a podcast, uh, Friday and we'll talk college basketball because we'll talk about what happened with the bills, uh, the night before, and, uh, we'll take a run around uh, the big four. Jonah, does that sound good to you? There's a UB football game Friday afternoon, but maybe after that football game, or maybe, Maybe in the press box, me and uh, Andre Robinson from Challenger News can jump on and we can just do it live in the press box. I'd like that. I'd like during during the game. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, And it sounds like that's that wouldn't be too unusual uh, from what I understand. For Jonah Bronstein, for Matthew Fairburn, I'm Tim Graham. Thank you for listening to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you.